Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of CineSoul, where we uh, use cinema to explore what matters to us most. Today's uh, episode focuses around the film Novitiate, which was directed and written by Maggie Betts. This happened to be her first narrative feature, so congrats Maggie. And uh, starred Melissa Leo, Margaret Qualey, Julianne Nicholson, and a whole lot of other great actors in what was a very impactful film for me. And I'm excited to have a conversation about how it impacted me and how it impacted my guest, Dominic Lang. Dominic's a writer, editor, director, poet, and he also happens to be a co-host on What Exactly Am I Watching Here? podcast, hosted also at the Overthink Podcast Network, where you can find this Cinesoul podcast. And uh, Dominic and I have done uh, a couple of Overthoughts and other podcast episodes together as co-host guests, part of the melting pot of whoever was on on that podcast. I think the last one we did, Dom, was what, Annihilation? Yeah, we did did Annihilation, and then the one before that was The Last Jedi. Well, cool. Well, thank you for joining me in this conversation, and welcome. Yeah, man, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on uh, on Cinesol. I'm excited to be here. My pleasure. I'm excited to have you here as well. Um, So just as a reminder to the listeners... We basically uh, take a little different approach here with CineSoul rather than your typical film podcast, let's say. We're less interested about the aesthetics and the filmmaking as an art angle as we are about uh, what did the film say to us? How did it speak to us? What did that churn up inside of us? And then let's talk about that and wherever that leads us. So we're using the film as a catalyst for what we hope will be a deeper conversation about other things that we're going to discover along the way. So um, hopefully you'll enjoy it as much as we end up enjoying it, because these conversations always seem to be very cool. A nun? Oh, Kathleen. You're a 17-year-old girl. I was called, and I'm going to become a nun, and there's really nothing that you can say that's going to make me change my mind. Good afternoon, all of you. Since, unfortunately, God can't be here to run this convent himself, my voice will serve as a stand-in for his. What is this you're reading? Something to do with this Vatican II. Our Pope has suddenly turned himself into some sort of reformer. Well, that's a good thing. Perhaps change is You think the church is in need of change? I happen to think the church is perfect the way it is. The church gave me my work, my community, even my identity. And now the church is trying to invalidate all that, saying none of it matters. So my question is, what is it that really does still matter? Um, Dominic, I'll start with with the general question. You know, you saw the film. I know you saw it recently. Mm -hmm. And how did you feel when, when it ended? Where were you? With that? <laughs> uh, I, man, emotionally, I was in a very contemplative place. I watched the film and was left thinking very much about what it means. Like the, the term personal relationship uh, gets thrown around a lot. And um, just by way of, of personal bio, I was born and raised in the church and the phrase, a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, gets thrown around a lot. 
And right. the film depicted a relationship with Christ that I had never really stopped to consider in a way that I had never seen. And so uh, it left me contemplative in, in that regard of what does a, or what can a personal relationship, especially in a context of faith, look like? Are there rules or restrictions on what it should or shouldn't look like, what it should or should not include? Um, it left me a little mournful in the sense that, uh, again, based off of some past experience, but also just a lot of stories of other people I know in a context of faith and in the church specifically, that is where people have experienced a lot of betrayal and a lot of pain. And you experience that in the place that is designed or ought to be the place of greatest safety and sanctuary. And on and, and another side, uh, I also felt encouraged in, in a way that Maggie Betts in this story, she creates a, a kind of an environment or a space to hold questions of faith while not have, while not like being didactic about it or not saying like, this is right, this is wrong. It's like, no, these are very honest questions and these are very uh, hard questions to get a grasp on. And I think just on a personal bias, the Western Christianity or Western church does not do a great job of dealing with the ineffable, of dealing with yeah. that which can't be held or addressed or, you know, put in a box and sold for eight ninety nine. Yeah. So to have that mystical experience, uh, I think she does an incredible job of bringing that uh, to the forefront. Yeah, I, I, I resonate with so much of that. And that was a lot of my sort of what was going on in my head and heart right after I finished viewing it, uh, you, you mentioned uh, the word mournful. And I was, you know, at the same time, I was kind of sad and angry, but also mournful for the experience that I witnessed these nuns and trainings have to go to, go through rather, um, in order to, to really explore their faith, which is, which is at fundamental what it should be. Right. I mean, yeah. these, these women are exploring their calling, their their sense of my God. I think I'm supposed to follow God. I think I'm supposed to become a nun. Now, you know that all starts from from different pl- personal spaces for each of them, right? They each have a, a a personal history that leads them individually, specifically to that moment where they gather together. And a lot of them, I think, uh, one of the characters mentions early on that you know why did you want to become a nun? Well, I saw that movie with Audrey Hepburn in it. Yeah, and, and uh, you know that's they're funny. teenagers. They're teenagers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And and that's totally legit. I mean, you know, if that sparks you to to think about um, a life of faith and a life of service in faith, you know that that's fine. That's yeah. legitimate. But as they continue to explore that, they're constricted so heinously, in my view by the machinations of the system of the Catholic church and certainly the Catholic church before Vatican two. And, Mm -hmm. and, you know, when this film is set is right at the advent of Vatican two. So that was basically the end of 65 where they rolled out sort of what they decided. 
Yeah. And and an order like the nuns order here, this convent was, you know, the the nuns were as as the main character played by Melissa Leo, the the Reverend Mother, maybe she's not the main character, she's certainly one of them. But uh what she expresses is part of her anger at Vatican II is that, you know, nobody asked the nuns what changes ought to be made. And and certainly that's true. And you know, I, I, it was very sobering for me at the very end of this film to see the title roll before the credits came, just sort of giving you some context about what happened and, and learning in that situation that as a result of Vatican II, um, more than 90,000 nuns basically uh, rescinded their vows. And how sad that, number one, they were working in a system that was so inflexible as to not even ask about what kind of reforms would be useful to them mm. before making them. And number two, that, that the only choice that they had left to them was to rescind their, their vows of, of service to the church like that. So, so yeah, I had a, I had a real sense of mixture and I, and I grew up in the church too, and, and have had a, you know, a journey with, with, faith and and spirituality and religion uh throughout my life um uh, you know and that journey is is not a flat line or a uh flat path by any means it it goes up and down and in and out and yeah. is it a, and is all it kinds a, of things is it a flat circle like uh <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, 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 most, mostly it's not flat. <laughs> okay. Gotcha. I'm just checking. But no, and I appreciate that. But so a lot of it resonated for me. Now my, my, my faith journey is in, is in, I guess what we would call the Protestant faiths rather than the Catholic faith. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm not a Catholic, have never been a Catholic and don't have much experience with Catholicism other than, you know, my experience through, uh, how in many ways it permeates culture mm-hmm. and yeah. And, so many of the, the filmmakers of the seventies coming from Catholic backgrounds. Yeah. And obviously there's, you know, the, the Judean Judeo Christian uh, tradition mm-hmm. uh, permeates a lot of, of our culture. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm experienced with that as well, but, but yeah, I, you know, even though, my experiences of religion and faith is is out of a Protestant context. I can certainly resonate a lot with uh, the girls going through their process in this film of trying to discover, like you said, they're teenagers. So number one, they're trying to discover who they are. Yeah, you know what's their identity mm-hmm. uh, as an individual, as as a a girl becoming a woman in life, and and two. Uh, they're doing that in the context of trying to figure out if if they can live a life of service to God through the the work of of being a nun. Exactly. Yeah. Like the element that I just was not aware of and was just not thinking of, and this is largely due just like as there is, you know, a male gaze in film culture. There's a male gaze when it comes to spirituality. Definitely. And the fact that so much of and I'm, I'm again. I'm speaking from uh, Protestant American Christianity language. So much of that language is couched in "God is a He." Yeah, and I don't know what that would be like to grow up 
female and constantly be hearing God as he and have that uh, separation. And, and so there's that. And there's also the, the primacy placed on intimacy with God. Like it is a very romantic, almost sexual, like sexual relationship. Yeah. Um, there is that, that closeness, a, a closest that no one else is designed to have. Like that's the, the special calling of being a nun. And I think I'm just extrapolating like that in part might be why the sisters take that so seriously, especially at the outset of the film where so many of the sisters at that convent have grown up in the earlier tradition that they, because they are nuns, they are elevated and they are selected by Christ to be brides of Christ. Literally brides of Christ. I mean, they go, you know, but yeah, I mean, yeah, there's a exactly. marriage ceremony and like a betrothal, the whole thing. Right. And to then have that stripped away without any discussion. It's like when Reverend Reverend Mother, I think is yes. her title, when Reverend Reverend Mother addresses all the sisters, she says, So in a in a nutshell, over the past three years, like, wait a minute. It's almost comical. Of just like, oh, by the way, the Vatican's been talking for the past three years, and all of what we do that's, that separates us from the rest of the world, that marks us as brides of Christ, all of that doesn't matter anymore. Right. Have a great day. Right. <laughs> like, it's devastating. Yeah, and you can understand why that character has such a reluctance to even face that reality and doesn't even bring it to the other sisters until you know much later than her authorities would want her to and her boss has a a a talking to with her that basically tells her you know you're either in you're out Mm -hmm. so if you're in get going yeah and and then we we finally get to that scene that's heartbreaking it's heartbreaking (sighs) even though at that point i'm you know it's hard for me to have sympathy well Mm -hmm. It's not impossible for me to have sympathy, sympathy, but it's it's difficult because you know the re- Reverend Mother has has been such a she's been con- she's been cruel toward she's been, the yeah. younger girls. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and and certainly by the end of it, I uh, there's no excuse for for the cruelty, but I understand the circumstances of her feeling that way. Okay, because of I think you know she's going through not only the the whatever whatever messed upness that she has as a result of what's happened with Vatican II and with her having to you know alter the way that she has experienced her life as a nun and and will have to do in the future that's broken her in so many ways oh yeah and and not only has it broken her it's caused a crisis of faith in her yeah uh which which you know I would argue crises of faith are good things because they, they, you know, they're, it's bad stuff that you can come out of, right? If that's a good thing, let's put it that way. It's, it's something that's hard that makes you stronger. Yeah. Uh, Ideally it's something that refines. Yes, exactly. In the terminology of the church. Right. Uh, uh, You know, but it's still hard to, I don't, I don't feel good about the Reverend mother. I understand her better by the end of the film. 
mm-hmm. but I certainly don't feel good about her. And I don't feel, you know, I feel less good because I think she represents a system that, okay, is being reformed at that moment in history, mm. but certainly up until then and and vastly more heinously throughout history, you know, has has been harsh and cruel and lacked compassion and empathy and love, I would use that term, mm-hmm. in its efforts to try to uh, propagate the the teachings of Christ, if you will. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, this is this is the religion that gave us the Inquisition, not the mm-hmm. only religion that gave us that kind of a thing, but the historical Inquisition that we all know yeah. about. That's yeah, true. Uh, and you see remnants of that in the style of how do you train up a nun? Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, there's self-flagellation is still part of the thing. Okay, mm-hmm. maybe we can't talk about it openly, but hint, hint, you know, you need to uh, deal with quote unquote the discipline mm. if you're a serious uh, nun in training, if you're a serious novitiate. So yeah, uh, you and, know, and Sister Kathleen or Margaret Quayley, she starves herself at some point and is looked upon with admiration. By a reverend right. mother. Right. And so in that way, starving oneself is a demonstration of one's affection for right. Christ. And that that kind of twisted logic, like I will inflict pain on myself because I love someone so much, is destructive. Yeah. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I and I guess one of the other things that for me, as a person who has, you know, has a lifelong journey of trying to live out a life of faith and spirituality, right? Mm. And and that, like I've said earlier, that that journey has its ups and downs and and peaks and valleys, if you will, which I think is completely normal. But you know, one of the things that I found so essential in that journey is finding spaces where doubt is accepted as a legitimate facet of your journey that doubt is okay doubt is embrace doubt and work in doubt find out what what's at the root of doubts for you and and that you know is a is a is a means of you know your spiritual discipline if you will yeah and so watching this film and thinking my god what other space should be more sacred than a nunnery with young girls trying to figure out if they want to serve God for the rest of their life? What other space should doubt be embraced? And should a safe place to voice doubt and to voice your struggle and to share that struggle in a way that can can help you work through it and enlighten others in that process? Could there be then then this? And and in this particular film, with this particular style of convent, that was so not a safe place. Right. Whenever you tried to be vulnerable or compassionate or you know have have sympathy for someone, that was all stuffed, and you know you were wrapped on the knuckles. We didn't see it literally, but I'm sure it happened. Yeah, uh, and that's just so heartbreaking for me. I mm. you know a mix of emotions, but also. Feeling like, oh, here, here are hearts wanting to search out what it means to have a relationship and a life with God, and yet they're in a place that isn't safe to do that, that thinks it's safe, 
mm-hmm. but isn't by the way that they run it. So that, uh, that was just heartbreaking to me. Yeah, no, absolutely, man. And the experience of growing up in the faith context and trying to live out a life of faith and spirituality. I mean, you, you come up against doubt and some of the most, some of the most transformational conversations I've had in my life are those when I can share doubt with people or when people share doubt with me um, or just share, share grief. And I, I think grief and doubt are again, two things that I would like to think that, that we as, as a church are are doing better. I don't know. Um, Yeah. I know that growing up, those were not two things. Those were not things that we did well with. Those were, if they were brought up, they were brought up in the context of Bible stories that by the end were done away with. And so nobody ended in grief and nobody ended the story in doubt or in confusion. And I think we do great disservice to people when they are hurting and we go up to them and say, well, you know what you need? You just, you need to, you need Jesus. Like you need, you know, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. So therefore get off your ass. Like that doesn't do anybody any good with the, the most healing conversations have been like you're basically you're the tree that falls in the woods and people just seem to tell you, like, I heard that. Like, I hear you, I see you, and we're going to sit in this thing together. And if we, if an answer comes to us, okay, but that's not the point. Right. Like, we're just going to, we're going to sit together and grieve together. Yeah. And that's the most healing element. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I, I, I have many times in my life where, I've been given the privilege of being the person sitting next to someone dealing with hard stuff, doubt, grief, whatever it might be. And have also had the blessing of having someone sit with me mm. while I was dealing with that hard stuff. And uh, over the course of my years, I've learned that it's, it's so far less important what words are said mm. and just the presence of another person with you and sort of a sense of affirmation about, you know, I'm with you on this journey. Right. I I may not have the answers that you were looking for, but that's not as important as having a companion on the, on the, on the trip. Yeah. On the way. Yeah. And I think that kind of, that kind of communion allows you to see Christ in a variety of people and through a variety of ways. And I listened recently to your past cynicism on uh, the shape of water. Yeah. Uh, and at one point Strickland, Michael Shannon's character, uh, is talking about like, Oh, they worshiped the, the natives worshiped this creature as a God. And he says, but we all know that's, that's not what God looks like. Right. And it's funny in the sense that all of these characters are in, one could argue all of these, er- these characters, uh, Octavia Spencer, the main protagonist, the, the mute, uh, right. Clinton, um, Giles, the artist, like they are all Christ to one another. 
and they are yeah. all the image of Christ to them. And um, it reminds me of Franny and Zoe, J.D. Salinger. And it's one of my favorite books. And I, at the very, very end, there's two people on, on a phone. They're having a phone call. And one's having a crisis of faith. And then her older brother is talking to her. And he tells, tells a story about how you imagine a, like an old woman on a porch who's been out there for decades and just like paints this really nasty picture. And like, you have that. It's like, that's Christ. And so like, you do the thing you do out of love and out of affection for that person. Like it's Christ himself. Right. And wherever you turn, you might see Christ. Yeah. And so to have conversely to have an environment that is so stringent. So like, this is the image and nothing else. And this is the message and nothing else. And this is what you should do. And nothing else is so it is tragic and it does piss you off and it does make you question, you know, like it's it, it, the movie left me thinking, what is the difference between forsaking an institution and forsaking that which the institution serves or like, proclaims to serve. Yeah, that's a that's a great question. That's a great distinction, I think. Because because I don't think, you know, I I, I certainly can't speak for Maggie Betts or yeah. it, you know, I can only speculate on what the messages that she's trying to say or imply in the film mm-hmm. are because of how they impacted me, but you know, my sense is that, you know, she's, she's indicting one and, and at the same time affirming the other, right? Mm. She's indicting this restrictive, constrictive uh, system, but at the same time, just really finding great beauty and inspiration in uh, the main character's search for God and her experience of really wanting to to live a life of deep faith and deep commitment and deep service. And, you know, the film ends in, in kind of a little bit of a surprise twist, if you will, yeah. uh, with, with the doubts that sister Kathleen has, you know, that we've seen her struggling with a little bit in the body of the film really come to a decision point. And, you know, we're the film cuts out the film, ends before we can be too certain of of what the next choices for sister Kathleen and and everyone else associated mm-hmm. with that are but we're certain about what sister Kathleen says and you know she ends up at the very end saying i seek more yeah as she's being you know asked the question what do you seek Mm-hmm. And she answers, I seek more. And maybe that means I seek more while still in the context of trying to become a nun or, or I'm going to change that context while continuing to seek more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's what, what I would hope happened to that character. And that's what I would hope would encourage everyone to continue to seek more about, you know, what it means to have a life of faith and, yeah. and, a, and a relationship, quote unquote, with God. Uh, how to have that as part of your life mm-hmm. with deep meaning and and guidance and and all the good things that that can bring, yeah. Uh, regardless of what sort of institutional framework uh, might be a part of that process, you know. Yeah. So I was uh, as as I was 
heartbroken for a lot of what happened to those uh, nuns in training in the film. I was encouraged by the end uh, of how I, I at least decided to interpret what Sister Kathleen had made a choice about. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, so, yeah, and good on Mike Maggie Betts for I think you know laying out a film that that allowed us to sort of experience both of those things at the same time, you know, both of the sort of a, a sense of, a sense of loss, but also a sense of encouragement. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, uh, some, I'm reading a book right now by a Jesuit, uh, his name's James Martin and mm-hmm. he's, he's been around on a few podcasts and written a few books. Um, I'm a big fan of the Jesuits personally. Um, why for me, I, what I've read, uh, from Jesuits, I re- like taking the practice of imaginative prayer from the Jesuit tradition, and and from people who aren't familiar with imaginative prayer, it's it really is just it's another way of engaging God in prayer. And the way I heard it presented to me was like take a familiar story from the Bible, so like the story of Jesus calming the storm. And you read it and you think, okay, well, that's, there's the story. Great. Peace be still, I guess. And to then go, okay, now go back to the beginning of the story and you think, okay, they're on a boat. Well, how big is the boat? What is their sail? What does the sail look like? Where are the disciples on the deck? How many are to your right, to your left? What, what are they wearing? How worn are their robes? What do the clouds above you look like? How cold is it? Go down below. Find Jesus. What does he look like when he's sleeping? Does he lay flat in his back? Does he curl up? How do you wake Jesus? Do you shake him? Do you shout? And to bring and and pursue that closeness, for me, changes the way that I see that relationship and changes the way that I see God's presence in my own life. Yeah. Also Jesuits have been a lot funnier. Like any, <laughs> any, Jesuit, <laughs> like anytime I listen to James Horton, he's cracking jokes. And so like on one hand he has like, there's imaginative prayer and it's wonderful, like emotional heartfelt like thing. And then you have the guy who cracks jokes. Um, Right, but I love the Jesuits for the way they engage imagination, and for me as a creative person, I respond greatly to like exercise your imagination. I'm like hell yeah, yeah. Um, but he's yeah. there's a one of the passages he's talking about people who've been wounded by the church, and he writes the church is made up of people who fail, who sin, and who commit grave error, even crimes. And he goes on to talk about pilgrimage. And he says, it is our pilgrimage too. In belonging to a church, we sometimes feel unworthy of membership. We also feel at times that the church is unworthy of the one who founded it. We walk both the pilgrimage of power in the light of the resurrection and a pilgrimage of powerlessness in the face of sin. Mm. And so in a a journey of that institution and a struggle with that institution. We are constantly coming up against the reality that the institution is made up of people and people are broken. Yeah. Yeah. We're all, 
nobody nobody's perfect we're all in in a lot of ways uh failing <laughs> yeah day to day uh struggling to try to be who we the best of us can mm-hmm. be uh our best selves if you will yeah and so so yeah that's that's for sure mm-hmm. uh, and that's why that's you know i kind of also left encouraged by the reverend mother's journey you know yeah uh, cuz she had to come to an acceptance of the fact that things were changing and things, those changes weren't really going to be good. And that that all kind of, I don't know, factored into her, her crisis of faith. I mean, she has that huge speech at the foot of, uh, in the, in the sanctuary or in the rectory yeah. or wherever she is, you know, where she's talking, she's praying, she's talking to, to God and she's just so wrecked by that and 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 questioning her faith and questioning you know god's purpose and you know i thought a lot about job in those situations uh about all these bad things happening to someone and how do you respond and but i think going through that i think strengthened her faith in some ways or gave her i hope at least it 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 was part of what got her to un sort of another side that, you know, we don't see in because it's, it's what might have happened after the film ended. Right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. but, but I would hope that her faith was renewed and her perspective was changed enough so that she could embrace whatever, uh, needed to happen as, as the, you know, the leader of, of a convent and she could be an effective, uh, person in her role. and and softened somewhat as the church, uh, as the Catholic church softened after Vatican II, if I can use that term. Sure, sure. Uh, but, you know, that's all speculation. Yeah, and potentially that faith doesn't, it's not going to look the way that she had expected right? or had been told. I, I just finished a book uh, called Sin Bravely, and it's a... Uh, it's a memoir written by a woman named Maggie Rowe, uh, who grew up, uh, became a Christian at a young age, but had panic attacks over whether or not she was saved and actually wound up in a, a kind of psychiatric facility. And it's, I would, I'd highly recommend it, um, people of faith or otherwise, um, just someone who is, struggling with a very internal and a question that she can't answer. And the conception of faith that she has at the beginning is not the expression and living out of faith that she has at the end. Mm. And it takes a lot of journey and conversation and expressions of doubt to get there. And I think even just on a, kind of a 10,000 foot level. One of the, one of the things I think the movie does well is having several conversations between the young girls of not doubt, but just like, I mean, they can't talk about Jesus all day long. Right. <laughs> like, right. Talk, you know, one, they, they have one conversation about like, you know, all the things they're never going to do or where all their friends are. And like, they're all off at the drive-in kissing boys. And, uh, or other conversations like at the beginning, like I heard his voice so clearly and now I don't know, 
I think I hear it. Am I making this up? And just like, those are such beautiful questions. Yeah. And I hope that kids growing up in church or just kids in general, adults in general have questions also have spaces to ask those things like, yeah, that's a really great question. And not to like, Oh, and here's the five answers that you've always been looking for. Right. Right. Like you said at the, uh, at the beginning of our conversation that, you know, I think one of the things that Western religion and especially Western religion in the forms that it's taken in, in this country, you know, there's so little room for mysticism. Yeah. There's so little room for the mystical and the, a sense of wonder Yeah, about uh, things spiritual that, you know, if you have that, it doesn't seem legitimate to uh, a lot of people in the church that I've, you know, encountered, yeah, they, they're like, Oh, well then, you know, you're not really a Christian. Yeah. If, if you allow that much mysticism into your thinking or your faith or whatever it might be. It's so sad. Uh, yeah. And you know, that all of it's an exploration of your relationship with a higher power. Right. Mm -hmm. So why wouldn't you allow it to encompass the mystical? Yeah. It just seems like trying to find a space that allows you to do that is challenging in, in today's society. Yeah. And that when you do find those spaces, those spaces tend to be marginalized Yeah, or, you know, stuck into a, into a box that might not um, accurately uh, contain what, what that space is trying to be or Mm. trying to allow or trying to do. Yeah. So. Right. Because everything now, everything, it feels like it has to be a return on investment. Yeah. And just like, (laughs) Well, I'll yeah. I'll have faith, but that means that I'm going to be successful, or that means I'm going to belong to the right club, or that means right. I'm going to belong to the right political party. And right. just like, listen, man, Christ acted outside of all of that. Like, truth be yeah. told, it doesn't look like he gave a horse's ass about any of that. Yeah. Pardon my French. It's all right. <laughs> we like We like the French. Yeah. <laughs> We love the French here. <laughs> Other people don't like the French, but I I want them right next to me. Yeah, and and this notion that uh not only though, you know, the way that you just described it about sort of, you know, uh you have to be successful, mm. but even I would put it in a sense of you have to have the answers. Yeah. That, that being in a place where saying I don't know and just being okay with not knowing and trying to work through figuring out what that means for you, that that's, that's, that's seen as failure. And it's such a contradiction in this, in this place. You know, we have, we have all these cliches, right? Uh, you learn more by failing than you do by succeeding, but nobody embraces you when you're failing. Yeah. You know, everybody wants you to help you get out of failure where, well, wait a minute, I'm, this is my peak learning time. What are you doing? <laughs> um, so, it, you know, I don't know. It's these matters make me feel like, and, and my experience in life has been that when you find those rare places, spaces, communities, if I can use that term, where, you know, you're embraced for who, who you are. Uh, at that moment, at that time, with all your failings and all your 
uh, questions and all your doubts. And people come up uh, and decide to invest in you as just someone who will sit with you and be a friend with you and provide, you know, comfort and companionship and listening Mm -hmm. as you struggle with what you're struggling with. You know, when you find those instances in your life, boy, hold on to them. Yeah. Because, because you know, th- they don't exist a lot, has been my experiences. They're few and far between, I guess I should say. Yeah. Don't take them for granted when you've found them. And, and that doesn't mean they always last either. You know, I've been in situations where I found those communities, and those communities have, over the course of time, evolved. And, that you know, that's okay. Yeah. Uh, you you know, letting go of things is is a... A good thing to learn, right, is also part of the life, uh, a healthy life and a healthy spiritual life. Yeah. But uh, but recognize, you know, the value when you're in the midst of it and appreciate it. Yeah. That's what I think. I agree. I, th- I think I don't know can be some of the most healing and graceful words that you say to someone. Yeah. And such the antithesis of what the church as represented by the Reverend mother in this film was willing to say, you know, the church has to, has to be able to, to assert that it does know and that you don't know. And if you don't know what we know, you don't know at all. And you maybe aren't even worth having here. I mean, the film starts out, uh, when the, when the girls first show up, uh, and are spoken to by the Reverend mother, and she asks if somebody yeah. has a question, and one girl raises her hand, and the Reverend Brother basically says, put your hand down. You know, you guys, supplicants don't have questions, and you're free to leave anytime you'd like. Good afternoon, all of you. Since, unfortunately, God can't be here to run this convent himself, my voice will serve as a stand-in for his. You'll be spending the next six months as postulants. After that, you'll enter the novitiate. Any questions? Put your hand down, sister. Postulants don't have questions. And you are free to go home. You know, right at that moment, I, I realized, oh boy, mm-hmm. this is definitely pre-Vatican II yeah. Catholicism. Let's see what happens here. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, you know, I think, I think by the end of the film, the encouraging thing for me, again, is that Kathleen is... She's still searching. She's still searching, but I think she's, she's, I think. She's uh, yeah, shifted, and I, I mean that positively, I think. Yeah, yeah. and she shifted from a place of her search being a negative to her search being a positive. Yeah. Right? That, you know, I come to this notion by what you just said about the words I don't know, you know, about asserting that you don't know. And, and I think. Sister Kathleen at the end of the film is just more fully embracing that notion yeah, that she doesn't know and that she wants to know. Mm -hmm. And she's going to continue to find out ways to seek that knowing, even if it's in a different context. Yeah. So, and I've done that in my life. You know, I've gone through uh, different communities of faith trying to seek quote unquote, what I, what I want to know. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some of those communities have helped and some haven't. And, you know, I've evolved in and out of them, so th- that's okay. But I continue to seek, and I and I hope I'm always seeking, yeah, right? Yeah. Because I think I think if I ever get to the place where I'm not seeking, then my faith has stagnated, or I'm sort of believing I'm willing to believe things without doing the work of trying to figure out 
what I believing. Yeah. What am I believing in and why? Exactly. Uh, so one of the questions that I try to ask my guests on Cinesoul is, so as a result of the contemplation that has happened because of what you encountered in this film, and, and you shared a lot of that already, what does that mean as far as steps of action, uh, choices that you're going to make, um, things that you know you've got in front of you that you're looking at maybe in a different kind of way? Um, what, what can you share with us about how the impact this film has had on you and what it's made you sort of contemplate and reflect on? Yeah. How does that work itself out or how – at this moment in your life, how's that going to work itself out? Yeah. There are elements where there are elements where I don't know. And it's almost like I have to, I'm more introverted and, and more contemplative anyway. And so sometimes it's almost like I kind of have to take an idea for a walk mm, you know, yeah, and just, and, and let it, let it grow or change. One of the ways in which I, I see it play out, a lot is is the fact I, I co-lead a small group and mm. uh, we call it, you know, each church has a name for it and that's fine. Um, we call it a community group because we do emphasize the fact and emphasize that communal idea that we have a meal once a week together and are talking about what's going on in our life. And, and one of the things that I prioritize is that creation of a safe space. Um, I want people to know that they can, if they're just pissed off from whatever's been happening the past week, that they can be angry and that's all right. And they can uh, be joyful. And that also is great. They can be, you know, loving life and and that's great. Um, Right. But, what we're after is that sincerity and what we're after is it's okay to be where you're at and it's okay to be where you're not. Yeah. If you hear a message or you, you hear someone sharing like that's not been my experience at all. And even coming through, coming through a recovery group at the church and and spending time in that recovery group, you know, each time of us sharing or confessing, like, you know, there were, times where people were saying like, I just feel like falling on the grenade right now. It's just like, yeah. I don't see a way out and I don't see much hope in this process. And people would say, thank you for sharing. And people was like, I acknowledge you. I see you. I hear your heart and your ache. And we're not here to give the three steps of how you're going to make everything bright and shiny right. and six figures a year. It's just like, yeah. this is you hurting right here, right now. And that's beautiful. Yeah. And however I can advocate for those spaces, be that my time in recovery group, be that my time as part of a small group, uh, be that having coffee with somebody, um, seeking out relationship and believing that people are as deep and wide as you are. I think that goes a long way. Um, I think asking, I sound like I'm trying to, this isn't, I'm saying it's not in a business context, but like asking open-ended questions because you believe people are deep, right? Because you believe people 
struggle and have tension as you have tension and as you have uncertainty. And if they choose not to go there, that's all right. That's their choice. And that, you know, another time perhaps, but you, it is your obligation and duty to at least set the table. And just like, I believe you're as deep and as joyful and as mournful and as confused as I am. And so that's what I'm, I'm pursuing if you choose not to, all right, but know that that space is here for you always. Right. Yeah. And I would argue that that's a, that's a sacred space. Yeah. You know, if you can, if you can manage the um, facilitation of that kind of a space that, you know, Mm -hmm. the creation of that, the maintenance of that kind of a space where people can come together and, and feel that level of safety and that level of authenticity and that, that level of community. Yeah. Then that's, I think part and parcel of, of a journey to healing for everybody is yeah, for anyone going through whatever thing they might be going through. Definitely. It's not the only element, but it's certainly a significant one in my experience. Yeah. And, and maybe I would also add just in the sense of, I think men in the church have a lot to learn and it's a, it's a time to, listen and to advocate and champion the experience and expression of faith in the women in church. Um, yeah. just, I mean, we've, we've done a lot of harm and yeah. we have propagated a harmful context. So yeah, it's just, it's going to involve a lot of, a lot of listening, um, a lot of, I mean, to celebrate that diversity of experience and opinion and uh, process. Like one of my favorite writers, Madeline Langle, she, she writes a lot about referring to God in, as a, in a neutral pronoun. Mm-hmm. Like even in prayers or in my own journal to try and add and, and do that. And in conversation to, you know, if I call God creator, that's not saying that God is male or female, but to give space and to give um, like a creator is, you know, the person next to me and that's not gender specific. Yeah. All that to say, I think what a a spiritual or masculine spirituality, male spirituality has a long, 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 long way to go. Yeah. You know, which reminds me of, you know, we're having this conversation as two guys talking about what happened to women in the seeking their faith, yeah. you know, so part of me recognizes and, and is reminded by you rightly so that, you know, our, our perception is skewed yeah, uh, based on our gender. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if we had um, a woman here talking with us about it, she might illuminate and certainly probably would illuminate different aspects, different prisms to to what we experienced uh about the film and about uh the journey of of faith that she might have experienced so uh mm-hmm. you know if if you're out there any women uh who want to comment please share your comments uh at the Cinesoul website you can reach that at com, and uh we'd love to hear from you and yeah. and certainly uh would be honored to hear from you let's put it that way but yeah. uh Absolutely. But yeah, I, uh, I'm, 
very much, you know, struggling lately, I guess, uh, in my uh, life of faith with getting beyond a sort of sense of judgment and anger Mm -hmm. uh, that the political moment, and I'll just use that term, um, is creating in me. There's, there's, there's so much to be annoyed and frustrated and angry and disgusted by in the way that society and the world is running. And the fact when, especially when I'm on social media, Mm. uh, a lot, it it seems like I'm inundated, uh, by, uh, these never ending waves of, uh, uh, junk. Yeah. (laughs) that we're all experiencing that I find myself very much needing to, uh, be reminded of goodness and of, uh, uh, compassion and sympathy and of the willingness to listen to people who are different than me and have a different perspective than I do or a different set of values than I do Mm. or, or whatever, without having to demonize or marginalize or compartmentalize them into a box that allows me to dismiss them. Uh, I might want to dismiss some of their ideas, uh, but I don't want to dismiss them. And I've talked about this a little bit, I think, on on a couple of the other podcasts I've done. But but yeah, that's a that's a. That's my that's the struggle I'm in is trying to preserve my sense of being someone who's empathetic and compassionate and reasonable, even as I'm faced with all this stuff that just makes me so angry and I think is so unreasonable. Yeah. And I think this this film brought some of that stuff up for me and helped me remember that, you know, it's less important to be focused on the rules and regulations of your faith than it is to, to be focused on uh, the truth and the journey and compassion and empathy and, and love in a way that isn't about selfishness, but it's about giving and caring and serving. Yeah. Uh, so I'm grateful that I experienced the film as a way to remind me of those, those pillars, if you will. Yeah. That, that sometimes I find myself uh, having a hard time holding on to in, in the midst of all these being buffeted by the storms of these waves of, of stuff going on. So, yeah. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. Jorge. Yeah. Well, thanks. And thank you for joining me in this conversation, Dominic. Dude. I very much appreciate it. And uh, thank you. You're welcome. And I hope our audience appreciates it too. Feel free to comment, as I mentioned, at our Cinesoul.com website. And uh, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Hey, folks, if you want to learn more about Cinesoul, you can check out our website at Cinesoul.com. That's C-I-N-E-S-O-U-L.com. You can leave us your comments or questions and interact with us that way if you like. This episode was co-produced and edited by Ben Helms, who also wrote and produced our theme. Thanks, Ben. Cinesoul is hosted by the Overthink Podcast Network, which publishes a multitude of podcasts that dive deep into arts, media, and culture. You should really check them out. They've got a lot of great stuff there. You can find the Overthink on Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, 
and wherever else you get your podcasts. And you can learn more about them at overthinkpod.com. That's overthinkpod.com. Hey, thanks again for listening, folks, and see you next time.